Okay, so let's be honest. Bond instruments are not talked about that often. And while people propagate the whole bond stock mix, most people do not understand bonds beyond kind of like lending money to a company or government and they pay you interest. <laughs> Fixed income or AKA bonds are very dynamic instruments with multiple profiting strategies. So in our pursuit to keep improving ourselves, we had to dig deep into the giant world of bonds. Did you know there are actually more money in bonds than the stock market? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another Chills with TFC session. In this series, we have to bring on interesting, relevant people to help us learn better from various perspectives. Life is not always about learning from people they already agree with. Perspectives shape a rounder thinker. So in our pursuit of the life we love or managing our finances well, our guest for today is the General Manager of FSN1, Jean-Paul Wong. He speaks French and grew up in Mauritius, so I do think that's pretty cool. <laughs> but more importantly, we spend a great time talking about bonds and question will it ever outperform equities, also dived into Asian high yield bonds and how to evaluate a bond fund because it is a big basket of different bonds with varying maturity time and even varying risk factors. There is a lot to understand, so let's dive deeper. There are many ways to invest. Yes. Right. What are some ways that you feel um, are the most comfortable for retail investors to explore? How do they start? I think for a lot of investors, we tend to uh, be more familiar with stocks uh, because maybe it's uh, the company names that uh, resonate with us like, because maybe we kind of know you know, the, the bank or the property company uh, and so on. So it's uh, something very relevant to our life. So I think that's probably the normal way for most investors to get uh, started. But I think for a lot of investors, if we're looking to kickstart our investment journey, actually a diversified form of uh, many stocks or many bonds uh, could be actually a good way to start simply because it doesn't require us to know so much, which can be quite intense, <laughs> into just one company. Quite, you sure quite. It's very intense. Right? Yeah, so I, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think when I started off, was I, I kind of like, uh, you know, wanted to, of course, dabble in stocks. And uh, I think there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I think one thing that I missed out when I started off, uh, you know, looking back in hindsight is uh, actually just to set uh, the goals, to be very clear on the goals on why I'm investing. Because I think when I have the goals, then it gives me a very clear uh, plan or strategy on how to do my investments. Mm. Yeah, uh, and the reason why that's important because there are so many things that happen uh, in the stock markets, in the investment world that can uh, distract us. Yeah, And uh, if I have that clarity of thought, let's say when I was much younger, then I think I would have given myself uh, more time uh, mm. to be uh, invested in the markets and I think that would have been uh, a good thing uh, for my portfolio. But of course, it's never too late in a way because I think along the way, those are lessons that I take with myself. Hopefully, I can share it and hopefully it's relevant to investors as well. Mm. Yeah, so I think one one point that I wanted to share also was um, I think the, the, the emotions part when it comes to investing, I think it's something that uh, 
it's too prevalent in a way in terms of how it makes us decide on what to buy and sell and when to do it, mm-hmm. which shouldn't really be the case. Mm-hmm. Because when, when that happens, then I think we could be making an emotional decision that uh, maybe doesn't fit with that plan and that goal at the beginning that we told ourselves we wanted to, to achieve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you talk about like distraction, right? Um, what, what is a distraction versus an information in that sense? I think distraction, uh, it could happen in the form of uh, all the news that we're surrounded with on a daily basis. A lot, that's a lot. That's a lot, (laughs) yes. Uh, So you hear all the experts coming in saying, you know, uh, interest rates uh, may rise, inflation risk is on the rise, tech is expensive, you should do this, do that. Uh, And uh, it can get very confusing because uh, different voices say different things. Different experts Mm -hmm. seem to be, you know, contradicting themselves. When I look at it and I try to sieve out all this noise, whether it's from uh, you know the investment uh, websites or news uh, portals or even you know our mainstream media when it comes to investments, when I clear away all that noise, actually it's back to, so why am I investing? Is it to uh, to ensure that my emergency funds can do better than what I get from my bank savings account? Uh, and secondly, am I investing because I want to retire early with a certain income stream on a regular basis? Thirdly, because I have uh, kids who are quite young, am I trying to uh, ensure they have some uh, amount of money that will be of uh, some use to them uh, when they grow older? I mean, in the past, I used to be a bit more traditional. I would think, okay, they probably should have this money for their tertiary education. Uh, I think that should still probably be the base plan. But uh, I think along the way in recent times, especially with the pandemic, I mean, it opens up, uh, I think, my mind as well as to maybe what they could do with that money. Mm. Who knows? Maybe there's an entrepreneur in one of my kids and Mm, if mm, he or mm. she wants to use that money, you know, to start a business. Mm. Yeah, like how maybe you're doing it yourself. Uh, So so maybe why not? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Nice. So in that sense, you are also on the lines of like stay vested, understand your goals, and stay invested rather than time the market kind of strategy. Am I sensing that? I think uh, part of that is uh, definitely correct uh, mm. because a lot of my uh, goals uh, tend to be quite long-term in nature. So I'm uh, referring to, let's say, 10 years, 15 years, or even 20 years from now. Mm. And then uh, with that kind of time frame, of course, it's easy for me to say, uh, let's stay invested. Let's not be too distracted by you know market declines here and there. But I, I also know that uh, there comes a time uh, when, you know, when we look at our portfolio, we should uh, make some uh, changes, a bit of spring cleaning, uh, maybe, you know, at the end of the year or at the start of the year when it's Chinese New Year, spring cleaning is a good time. <laughs> so maybe it's good to, yeah, to just see whether like uh, the tech sector, like last year, a lot of the disruptive innovation uh, investments that I have in my portfolio, uh, they ran up really fast last year so is it time to trim some of that so actually while we stay invested and i believe in the merits if you have a long time horizon it also doesn't mean we shouldn't uh you know make tweaks to the portfolio in the shorter term yeah it doesn't mean we shouldn't do a spring cleaning exercise once a year or we rebalance so one of the things uh for example that i did earlier this year was to add to sectors that i thought were looking a little bit cheaper uh so for example the financial sector mm. uh so that's something that I shared with investors as well. And uh, for tech, I'm still kind of exposed there. I took a bit of profits for one of my tech investments, but I see it as a very uh, long-term play, especially for like disruptive innovation. So I still have some exposure, but of course it's extremely volatile uh, this year because of what has happened last year, right? Because I mean, I was sharing with investors, no market or no sector just goes up uh, indefinitely in a one straight line. So I think a bit of a correction is good. And maybe that's the time when uh, either 
we add a little bit uh, or we add to other sectors that are you know more attractively valued la, whether yeah. it's financials or so on yeah yeah, yeah. and and you see right um even in our short little discussion it's about equity 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 yes <laughs> right? yes so the the general idea always seems like you know equity is the main guy like batman right and then you have all these like fixed income or like bond funds as like your sidekick right (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know so so like is there any way any possibility that you know fixed income can actually outperform or like bond funds can outperform you know equities in the longer term yeah I think there's a bit of that impression for bonds. Uh, like you say, like, it's a bit of a psyche. Like it's a, it's yeah. Robin lah. Yeah, I but, always feel uh, like Robin, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not as uh, you know uh, high profile as uh, the main character, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, in some ways it's uh, it's because you know when you take a very long time horizon, then I think equities tend to uh, provide uh, maybe better annualized returns than let's say bonds. But having said that, you know your question is about whether bonds can outperform equities and. And uh, the answer is yes, uh, and it really depends on uh, the time periods we're talking about, firstly. Uh, secondly, also, it depends on uh, what kind of uh, bonds we're talking about, because when we talk about bonds, it's not just one type of bond. So it's a bit like equities. When we talk about equities, maybe we're talking about global equities, like the MSCI World Index, but uh, within equities, there's a lot of different kinds of equities as well. So for fixed income as well, it's, uh, it's very similar. Uh, I mean, very broadly, you know, you have your sovereign bonds uh, as opposed to, let's say, your corporate bonds. So these are your government bonds versus your company bonds. Mm-hmm. That's one one difference. The sovereign bonds are government bonds. Government right? bonds, okay. yes. The second kind of, uh, you know, uh, difference uh, you may find is uh, you have your investment-grade bonds and your non-investment-grade bonds that, uh, you know, in the market we call uh, junk bonds, mm. uh, which may seem quite harsh, uh, you know, like <laughs> junk bonds, but uh, it's because they, they are seen as higher risk. Uh, and uh, and because of the higher risk, actually, at different periods of time, they can also offer quite interesting kind of yields or coupons to us as investors. But if I go back to your question, so if I, we look, look back at history, right, I think like during the GFC period, um, I think that's a classic example when... Uh, Great you know, financial when, crisis, right? Correct, mm, that's right. So in 2008, right, then you'll find that during that year, equities were bashed uh, across the board. And, uh, and bonds uh, were also uh, bashed to some extent, but there was one category of bonds that did uh, okay, and therefore, in a way, you know, if you zoom in on 2008, there was one category of bonds that could outperform equities during that time period. And that's really your, uh, your developed market bonds, uh, more of your, like, uh, your U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, and why did that happen in 2008? It's simply because, uh, you know, when, uh, when there are extreme market conditions, uh, people are usually, you know, trying to escape from uh, the things that are free-falling, which is your, you know, your stocks and your equities, right? And they want to do, go to something that's safe, so what we call the safe havens. And, and I think in this case, it's really the, the government bonds. Uh, and uh, they did well in 2008, uh, therefore. And that brings me to the next point, which is, uh, you know, bonds, therefore, are very uh, different. There are different bond segments. So in 2008, if I use that example again, your non-investment grade or your junk bonds did very badly too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I think when it comes to uh, us as investors, therefore, how should we look at bonds? Because there are periods where it can outperform equities. And that kind of gives us a clue already that uh, when we build our portfolio, we would ideally want uh, maybe two types of asset classes or more that are uh, not totally correlated with each other. So hopefully, uh, in certain market conditions, the equities may not do so well, but the bonds can do better Mm. and vice versa. And I think that uh, that also therefore means that uh, 
uh, Bond's always merit a place. Uh, may not, uh, you know, outshine uh, Batman, uh, mm. you know, but uh, I think Robin deserves a place in our mm. portfolio, mm. Uh, using your analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, everybody has their own fans, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. But then, in that sense, you know, um, could you just kind of help me elaborate a little bit about safe havens, right? You know, because... Um, People use this word pretty loosely also. Like what is considered a safe haven? Is it a currency? Is it a government bond? Or you know, how are we looking at, how do we define something where we call it safe haven? Yeah, I think um, safe havens are traditionally uh, are seen as a bonds that could be issued by, let's say, uh, governments. Uh, but it's not also their uh, all kind of governments because yeah. there are some government bonds that have defaulted like on Argentina, giving out. Right? Yes, uh, the likes of Argentina, <laughs> you have Russia as well. Uh, and uh, and there's probably a few more. Mm. So uh, so usually uh, one way to uh, define safe havens is to look at, uh, let's say, the kind of uh, uh, credit rating that the credit uh, agencies attribute to the different sovereign bonds. So you would like to have uh, bonds that are essentially uh, investment grade for sure if you want to go for uh, the safety uh, aspects. Uh, and uh, uh, depending on the kind of uh, uh, bonds, right, some of them could be triple A rated or even your one single A rated, they could be seen as fairly safe as opposed to you know, those bonds that are rated uh, worse uh, or even you know, uh, rated as uh, junk bonds. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. But then in that pursuit of you know, safety, um, it sounds like the bigger countries, the bigger currencies are where the safety is. You know, but then how then do we factor foreign exchange rate mm. into that picture? Yes. You know, when, it, when we talk about, let's say, uh, the bond market, then the US market features very prominently. Uh, first, as a, a very large uh, market, but also secondly, because it's, uh, it's uh, the US. So we're talking about the US dollar as well. And um, I think uh, a lot of the bonds, uh, even in Asia, uh, when you look at the corporate bonds or some of the sovereign bonds uh, in Asia, they also are denominated in US dollars as well. So it's a very, uh, it's a currency uh, that it's a very uh, prevalent across bond markets uh, across the world, not just in the US. And uh, when you look at that, then of course, uh, from a Singapore investor's perspective, if we're trying to uh, preserve and uh, maintain our returns in Sing dollar terms, then we have to be mindful that uh, you know a Sing dollar uh, depreciation or a decline in the Sing dollar versus let's say the US dollar, you know, could uh, actually be a detrimental uh, for us uh, depending on what we invest into. So yes, the currency part matters in that sense. And I think one way to circumvent or go around this problem is uh, to go for um, a Sing dollar hedge kind of a uh, currency class for some of the fixed income funds. But usually uh, this kind of uh, structure. Uh, only exists, let's say, for uh, bond uh, funds, which are essentially bond unit trusts. Mm. Uh, if you go into bond ETF space, uh, you don't really find like uh, a, a bond ETF that has a, a, a currency hedge class, for example. So it's not too common uh, in that sense. So therefore, if currency is a factor that matters a lot to us as an investor, then I think maybe a bond unit trust could be more attractive uh, as an option, especially those that are, let's say, sing dollar uh, currency hedged. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And when we talk about like package together, you know, many people are packaging all sorts of stuff, right? <laughs> so, so in, in the bond fund space, you know, how, how are things done, you know, in terms of like packaging investment grade versus junk bonds and then how do they come together into bond funds, right? Just kind of help us 
Uh, I know there are like all these bonds are uh, 讲不完, okay? We cannot finish everything today, you know, but yeah. help us uh, envision a process. How, how is this done? Yeah, I think you mentioned the investment grade. Uh, mm. So I think if you use uh, rating agencies, uh, metrics, uh, for example, like S&P, so you're talking about your triple B minus uh, all the way up to triple A. So these are considered your investment grade. And there could be a, a, a bond fund that uh, maybe specializes in just uh, buying bonds that are, let's say, investment grade. And also the second thing they could do is they could say, okay, I'm just going to buy Asian investment grade bonds. So I think it's important to therefore look at the fund's uh, uh, objective because that will tell us, okay, this fund is going to be uh, giving a certain kind of a return because it's an Asian investment grade as opposed to, let's say, an Asian non-investment grade or Asian high yield or Asian junk bond fund, right? Then that one by right, I would then expect the kind of uh, average uh, yield to maturity to be higher versus the investment grade uh, bond fund. How, how much? Right? Give us some context. I think you could be looking at, uh, you know, a difference of uh, 200, 250, 300 basis points, uh, depending on uh, the kind of actively managed uh, bond funds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the investment grade uh, space, you could be talking about, let's say, a 4% average yield to maturity. Uh, and uh, maybe if it's a high yield Asian space, you could be talking about uh, a 6, 6.5% kind of uh, average yield to maturity. So that gives us a certain uh, idea as to maybe how much yield I can expect from these different bond segments. Yeah, And uh, when it comes to how to package these products, I guess for the ETF issuers or for the fund managers who are essentially the active ones, then, uh, yeah, they'll be looking at the investment mandate, uh, which is the investment objective I referred to. For ETF managers, uh, in a way, uh, the task is maybe, you can say, a bit simpler. Uh, they'll be looking at index, right? Mm. And try to replicate uh, the performance of that index. Whereas active fund managers would be uh, also having an index, but uh, by right, uh, we pay them a bit more management fees because they are supposed to deliver better returns than what the benchmark can. Because if they cannot, then of course it makes sense to just go for the index uh, bond ETF yeah, but I think for bond ETFs, the other interesting thing to note, uh, as opposed to let's say an equity ETF, is that uh, uh, an equity ETF, uh, you know, in terms of uh, what the ETF issuer does, he could be buying essentially the whole index of stocks and uh, trying to replicate that index very closely. So the tracking error, which is the difference between the ETF and the index that it uh, tracks, could be very small, therefore. But when it comes to fixed income, it's uh, not as straightforward, simply because uh, when you're talking about bonds, right, they are usually uh, OTC traded. So you're not buying them essentially on the stock exchange. It's not as liquid. Yes. It's privately traded. Yes. OTC. There are not many uh, mm. exchange traded uh, so-called uh, uh, bonds. I mean, we have some, let's say, on the SGX, right? Though, mm. uh, some of the retail bonds that are traded on the exchange. But it's a very small uh, uh, quantity of, uh, of bonds and choices for us. So uh, when you're talking about the you know, wholesale bonds that are OTC traded, then we're talking about, firstly, a huge investment outlay. Usually it takes about $250,000 to buy one, one bond. Mm. So I think for an ETF issuer, then when they look at this universe, uh, then they don't uh, do 100% full replication because uh, uh, there's a capital issue. There's also, of course, the, the ability to replicate fully uh, based on the liquidity point that you brought up uh, and so on. So it could be a partial replication. Uh, of uh, the index, uh, they just probably want to ensure that it's uh, it's close enough and good enough for them to be a good proxy uh, for the index. That's mm. uh, usually what happens for bond ETFs. Mm. Yeah. So then, what is an okay tracking error then? You know, in this space, based on your uh, broad understanding. 
I think the tracking error, uh, usually there would be numbers given by the di different ETF issuers, yeah. and it varies. I think for some uh, bond universes, uh, especially maybe the US side, like your US treasuries, I think the tracking error could be quite small. But there could be slightly higher tracking errors for uh, certain sectors uh, of bonds. So if I can maybe bring up the example of uh, the Chinese bond uh, market, uh, which has become a little bit more uh, prominent in recent times because there were two ETFs that were uh, listed on the SGX uh, last year. So uh, these are Chinese onshore bonds. So the tracking error, uh, simply because you know they don't do a full replication, could be a bit higher. Uh, you could be talking about 0 0.2, 0 0.25, that kind of uh, you know, tracking error, very broadly speaking. And uh, is it a good enough replication uh, of, uh, let's say, the, the index that they're trying to track? I would say yes, it's, it's good enough. Uh, I think if we go to one of the two, uh, you know, Chinese onshore bonds uh, that will uh, launch on the SGX, they could be having about 50 to 100 bonds inside the ETF, whereas the index could have about 200 plus. So, you know, it tells you that it's really not a full replication, but it's good enough because it's uh, probably uh, from a goal of achieving that kind of yield, maybe the ETF issuer feel that it's good enough. Mm. So I think uh, that is probably a more important point. Uh, I brought up the, those two uh, bond ETFs is because I thought it's a very uh, interesting addition to the kind of uh, bond ETF uh, choices we we have. Uh, because traditionally, we always look at bonds from uh, the perspective of US bonds, uh, whether it's investment grade or non-investment grade, and also Asia uh, similarly, and also for emerging markets. Uh, but Chinese bonds, uh, especially the Chinese onshore bonds, uh, because of the you know uh, greater opening of uh, the authorities in terms of having access for foreigners, and the kind of yield they can give, and the kind of volatility which is actually quite low, surprisingly. So even in market conditions like last year in March or even earlier this year, uh, the Chinese onshore bonds actually were pretty uh, steady uh, and uh, not too volatile. And we're look talking about let's say very broadly, a uh, the kind of yield we could be looking at is about three plus percent. Mm. So that's maybe one uh, novel uh, bond segment that uh, could be interesting, I think, for investors, uh, as opposed to let's say uh, the sub three percent that we may be getting from you know the local uh, sing dollar investment grade bonds. So then, if we're exploring the Chinese market, right? You know, everybody is trying to explore the Chinese market these days as a retail investor trying to go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What you pointed out, Chinese bonds. What are some factors that we need to know that it's different? Right? Mm. Because you know, my perspective is they operate on a different political, cultural, financial, social system. Right, so then, as someone that you know is so used to Singapore and like in the US and all that, how do I need to see them differently? What are some mm. core ideas? Yes, uh, I think it's a good point because uh, it's a it's a new uh, kind of a investment universe uh, to many of us, yeah. uh, including to myself. So I think uh, one one thing to look at is uh, what are the kind of uh, things they they invest into. So Chinese onshore bonds, uh, like uh, the two ETFs that are launched uh, on the local stock market, they are essentially uh, investing into Chinese government bonds, 
uh, and one of the ETFs also does a bit of uh, investments in uh, what they call the Chinese policy banks, which are essentially quasi-sovereign uh, entities as well, just for the extra kicker or booster in terms of yield. Uh, but I guess the main thing to note is, are these investments uh, for that kind of yield that I'm maybe expected to get, uh, is it worthwhile you know, for the volatility? Uh, that's one factor to look into. Second, it's also the currency point that you brought up, uh, because... Uh, if you're talking about Chinese onshore bonds, then essentially these are RMB-denominated uh, products. So your currency point that you brought up earlier is very valid once again because if I am a Singapore-based investor, let's say I just want my investments to be uh, secure in terms of Sing dollar. To me, I'm being exposed to certain uh, exposure to the RMB movements versus Sing dollar. And uh, the question is, therefore, what's my view on the RMB versus Sing dollar uh, currency movements, especially in the longer term? I would like to assume that... Uh, if I'm going to have an exposure there, that the RMB, by right, uh, because of uh, you know greater economic powers and maybe uh, the fact that the onshore Chinese bond market is still under-penetrated at this point of time, mm. these are potential long-term factors that may help the Chinese RMB to uh, appreciate in the longer term. And therefore, that uh, could be an extra kind of uh, uh, you know investment uh, return, uh, let's say, for investors. Yeah. Uh, so I think that is one important point uh, for the currency aspect, especially when you look into the Chinese market. Yeah, nice. And when we're investing, even in China, you know, the primary idea is always like let's go with the investment grade stuff, country sovereign bonds. You know, those are like very high quality. You know, based on the grand universe of the bond world, right? Yes. <laughs> but then, at what scenario should I explore corporate bonds or like high yield bonds or like junk bonds? You know, okay, these three words used very interchangeably, interchangeably yes, right? right. They kind of mean the same thing. Uh, yep. So, under what circumstances, you know, should I explore something like that? Yeah, I think uh, it's back to the point of uh, what am I trying to achieve uh, for this maybe uh, bucket of my investments or, or this bucket of my wealth. I, I bring the term bucket here to say that, uh, you know, from, for let's say our portfolios or our money or investments, right, we could have uh, different buckets, meaning that uh, they could be uh, serving uh, different objectives. So yeah. I alluded uh, kind of uh, to this point earlier on where I have, let's say, an emergency funds bucket. And that one, in a way, I would like it to be quite safe. So for myself, I tend to look at more of the Singapore dollar uh, money market or short duration bonds uh, mm -hmm. in that space because I'm just trying to get a better return than, let's say, fixed deposit rates and savings rates. But I don't want too much risk because I may need that money quite urgently uh, at the short notice. Uh, but if I'm looking at my other buckets uh, where I have more time, then I think that's where an uh, interesting uh, sector like the Asian high yield can come into play or even Chinese high, high yield can come into play uh, because I could be getting the extra kicker in terms of return. I could be looking at 6%, 7% possibly or higher. Uh, of course, at higher risk as well. Mm, uh, yeah. So I need time to be on my side like, in yeah, that sense. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't really want that uh, kind of maybe investments in my uh, emergency funds bucket. But in my retirement fund bucket, I'll be happy to bring in Asian high yield. I think it's a very interesting space because um, I could be looking at, uh, let's say, an average uh, yield of uh, 6%. Uh, and a lot of uh, Asian high yield corporate bonds are actually Chinese bond issuers. So in a typical index uh, that tracks Asian high yields, right? I think uh, slightly over half are actually Chinese corporates. So it's not for everyone. Uh, because, you know, uh, some investors will be a bit concerned about 
uh, the corporate governance issues mm. uh, and so on. Uh, and it's fair enough. And if you look at Chinese corporate bonds, right, uh, and I'm talking about the junk bonds here, yeah. uh, a lot of them are also, uh, let's say, in the Chinese property space. So again, you know, uh, some of us may feel that that comes with a certain amount of risk. Yes, the default rates and and so on. So I think we have to weigh that versus uh, the probability uh, of defaults, Mm. the default risk. And if we think uh, that, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, something that's manageable and attractive because of the yield I'm I'm getting, then it's still a very attractive investment. Mm. So actually, for for, for myself, I I really like Asian high yield in my more riskier portfolios uh, or buckets. Uh, because of that kind of uh, you know yield that I'm getting, yeah. uh, and I like to reinvest that uh, mm. so that I get you know uh, the, the 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 power compounding effect as well in the longer term. Yeah, yeah. as opposed to let's say your government uh, bonds or your very uh, safe uh, investment grade corporate bonds, which are not going to give you you know six percent. They're just going to give you let's say two percent, three percent, right? Mm. So uh, good enough for certain purposes and for certain investors who are you know very risk averse. But if you are able to you know take on some risk uh, Asian high yield with the uh, short duration uh, features inside that's a pretty attractive uh, I would say idea okay yeah. okay by the way caveat to you guys you know this is not a recommendation <laughs> we're here for education purposes only right and but following that I, I want to hear a little bit because when we talk about like bond funds right the beauty of bond funds is there's a collective you're not buying into one, anything in particular you know so based on a certain idea you buy a basket of, of bonds Right, so then the risk of default, you know, then uh, kind of dilutes across all these different bonds. But what is an okay, you know, default rate then, you know, in, a, in such a structure of like junk bonds, Chinese junk bonds? Yeah, uh, I think uh, so certain metrics give us an idea of, let's say, what the market expects in terms of default rates. Mm. Uh, so it could be a few percentage points high, for example. Uh, so that's why a diversified bond comes in with the features that I can, you know, minimize the impact of certain defaults in my portfolio. If you're looking at Asian high yield or Chinese high yield bonds, then I think there are certain assumptions in the marketplace on the kind of default risk uh, that we could be expecting. Uh, our team, or I myself, when I look at it, I think that uh, based on the kind of uh, numbers uh, that we're looking at and also versus the yield that we're uh, expected to get, uh, it's still pretty attractive at this point. But back to your main point, the diversification aspect of uh, a package product, right? Whether it's a bond ETF or bond unit trust, I think uh, for the kind of default risk uh, you would like to see, of course, it should be... Uh, uh, it should be <laughs> yes, it should be minimized. Uh, yeah, it should be in mayo. I want to say <laughs> new, but I think, uh, you know, uh, from an investment point of view, uh, you can't always... Guarantee new, yeah, uh, or ensure new, in yes. Sense, right? uh, especially for active fund managers who may be, you know, sticking their head out uh, to say that I'm willing to take certain higher risks, even though maybe this uh, bond may carry higher default risk, but I'm willing to take it because I think that I'm well compensated. Let's say mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in the next few months uh, by the yield that the bond is giving me, uh, and I think that's the kind of thinking that goes through the the mind of an active fund manager. Of course, for a bond ETF, then. It's more of tracking the index. There isn't so much of maybe that kind of uh, thinking in terms of bond selection. But of course, uh, your uh, bond ETFs, issuers, also do the task of uh, also rebalancing. So it's not as if like the bond ETF uh, constituents uh, do not change at all. Uh, They do change and they could change uh, because the ETF issuers have a certain rebalancing process in place to ensure that maybe... uh, 
certain bonds uh, come out, maybe because it's uh, approaching maturity periods, uh, or maybe for other reasons they take them out, or maybe there are new bonds into the market because there are new bond IPOs as well constantly, and then they decide that, okay, I like this new bond in the market because of the, the yield that I'm getting, the coupon rate that I'm getting, so they add it in. Mm-hmm. So uh, even for a bond ETF uh, manager, there's that uh, you know a constant update as well like, in terms mm-hmm. of the composition of the ETF. And in that sense, right, you, you rightfully point out the whole thing about like index, like bond funds, they're following an index, they buy, they hold to maturity to the end of the coupon. Right? That's what most uh, bond funds out there, they do. You know, but what about the active bond funds, right? Because that is where the sexy stuff happens, right? <laughs> where the secondary market trading in the bond space, where, where actively managed strategies start to come in. You know, and this is a rabbit hole. It gets very complicated for a lot of people that don't understand. So could you just kind of walk us through some of the short-term measures or short-term strategies that some of these bond funds are using? And whenever we see certain keywords, right, what, what do we need to understand here? I think uh, for active uh, fund managers who have uh, bond funds uh, under their care, right, they would be looking at, uh, I would say, the, the, the index or the benchmark uh, that they set their fund against. Because I think one of the key uh, metrics is to ensure that they can uh, provide outperformances. So I think uh, they would then look at maybe uh, the kind of uh, yields, uh, the credit risk, the default risk of uh, all the different bonds, and whether they should overweight or underweight certain bonds in their portfolio versus their benchmark. Uh, whether they can, they can do that at the sector level or they could do it also at the country level and so on. Uh, they could also have some aspects of a uh, currency uh, uh, management because maybe they have certain views on currencies, whether certain currencies will appreciate or depreciate and so on. I think for investors, first thing when we look at bonds is to maybe just go back to uh, the first few things we talked about, which is uh, if you're looking for safer kind of uh, bond uh, segments, then uh, your more Singapore-centric uh, government or investment-grade bonds uh, could be a first foundational kind of step we can take. Uh, don't expect uh, you know super high sexy returns <laughs> love, for obvious reasons but yeah, yeah. Uh, those are the Robin, more Robin, fun- remember, yes right? the Robin but Robin will be there too yeah, you Robin know, is uh, always your friend right? yes, yes we'll be having your back la, in terms of ensuring that you know when times are bad the portfolio yeah. just doesn't go downhill 100% mm. so I think that's what uh, that is for and uh, then I think as we then look at okay, what else can I look into to give me the extra kicker in terms of uh, yields and, you know, potentially returns and so on from a total returns perspective, including, you know, the price appreciation perhaps, then I think uh, that's where, you know, your uh, your high yield uh, bonds come in. Uh, and uh, a lot of it uh, could be from Asia because uh, that's a sector that uh, looks pretty attractive from a valuation perspective. And to just then look at uh, the mandates of uh, the ETFs or the unit trusts, because I do understand that certain investors also may have their preferences because of, let's say, costs. Then they like, okay, I would rather go for the ETFs because of the lower cost. And I think there are merits in that, uh, especially for very simple bond ETFs mm. for that kind of, you know, like uh, 10, 20 bips an, an, a year. I mean, it's really, uh, it's really low cost uh, to, to, to go and have some exposure into some of these government bonds and so on. But maybe if you're an investor who wants to have a bit more active management because of the potential for higher returns, but also maybe you want some single dollar hedge currency costs, then I think that's where the bond unit trust uh, could be a bit more interesting. So very simply, uh, simplistically, I would like to maybe keep it uh, that way in terms of what we should focus on. Uh, because I think your question was about uh, you know how the fund manager 
uh, could be looking at how he manages his portfolio. There, there's a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. and there's a the lot of risks as well. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, if I can maybe talk about some of the risks, uh, for example, so uh, a lot of uh, fund managers, uh, or bond uh, ETF issuers, will be talking about, uh, let's say, currency risk, which we talked about quite a bit. We can also be talking about interest rate risk because uh, depending on uh, the kind of uh, interest rate expectations uh, we have and the market has, that also impacts the potential uh, prices of bonds uh, going forward. So I think entering 2021, right, I think one of the key investment teams that popped out was, in a way, uh, because of all these very loose monetary uh, expansionary policies, right? <laughs> free, so, free, yeah, free, just free, free, free nonstop. <laughs> uh, so essentially then what that means is that uh, there were some concerns about, hey, you know what, that, what does that mean for inflation? And when, you know, there are inflation risks uh, creeping into our mindset, then that's when, uh, you know, we would be thinking, oh, the regulators or the central banks would start to want to increase interest rates. So there's been a bit of talk in the markets in the last few weeks on, on this in the US. And of course, a lot of the policies in the US will impact us even in Singapore yeah, yeah, uh, from yeah. a, you know, a monetary mm. policy and interest rate policy. So when that happens, then um, you know, where, uh, when uh, there are expectations of uh, interest rates going up, then of course uh, there's that the negative uh, relationship between interest rates and uh, bond prices. So uh, that could then impact uh, some of the bonds price movements because of all this you know, speculation on what may be happening. Yeah. So interest rate rates uh, is definitely uh, another uh, key thing that I think uh, fund managers and even as uh, bond investors, we should also keep an eye on as well. Yeah. In that sense, when we go and kind of stew everything down to a bond fund, there are all these different bonds packaged into it, right? And as a retail investor, I could always just like, you know, pick the best and just, you know, pray everything works, right? In, in essence. <laughs> but yeah. then there are other things like maturity, time, you know, the amount of like bonds that come into the fund, you know, how, how do I evaluate all these things? Do I need to care about, you know, maturity length, you know, coupon hmm. payments and the amount of bonds that keep coming in? It's, actually, it's like a deal flow kind of thing, right? Does that matter to me or, or how does that work? I think as investors, especially when we are buying a bond ETF, for example, mm. right, uh, we don't have to be too overly worried about all these different things um, because uh, I think it's down to, let's say, the investment mandate of that bond ETF we chose. Uh, that would give us a certain uh, broad picture of what kind of uh, returns and risks I'm looking at. In the interim period while I'm invested in that bond ETF, yes, there will be uh, different considerations. I think there's, uh, I mentioned about the interest rate risk. Uh, which is very much linked to the duration, the average or duration or weighted duration of the different bonds in the bond ETF. Because uh, when you have a bond ETF with, uh, let's say, an average weighted duration that is quite long in terms of number of years, then I think uh, if uh, there are interest rates, uh, uh, concerns about interest rates going up, right, then I think uh, 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 that would have a more negative impact yeah. on a bond ETF with a longer duration. Uh, as opposed to a bond ETF with a shorter duration. So I think uh, those you, factors... Can you just come clarity there? Why, hmm. why is it like that? I mean, duration, very simplistically, if I can explain it, is uh, let's say for a certain amount of increase in interest rates that we expect in the market, let's say we expect for, you know, there's a 1% increase uh, in interest rates, uh, we could uh, expect the bond price to also change uh, about 1%, uh, in the opposite direction because of that inverse relationship. So, you know, the bond price could be down 1%, uh, 
but if the duration is long, we could then expect, let's say the duration of the, uh, of the bond ETF is, let's say, five years. So if we expect interest rates to go up, let's say, by 1%, then we could uh, expect uh, the bond prices to uh, decline by, let's say, roughly 5% based on the duration. So that gives us a certain very broad picture uh, idea of what could happen if interest rates move. Uh, I'm using an example of interest rates going up because course, I think that's what course. markets are worried mm-hmm, about mm-hmm, uh, at this point. So and I don't uh, think it can go down anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, interest rates have come to that kind of level, that kind of low level. So, uh, so duration in that sense is an important thing. And I think a lot of your bond ETFs fact sheets do have the information on average weighted duration of uh, all the bonds inside. So that's one important metric that I think you pointed out that is useful for investors to just have a rough idea. Yeah, because uh, when we go for this calm environment now, where there are you know certain inflationary uh, risks, uh, and therefore you know we could expect interest rates to to rise at some point, it's a more question of maybe when. Then uh, I think the right uh, thing or strategy to adopt is to go for the shorter duration bonds as opposed to maybe having very long dated uh, or long duration bonds in your portfolio. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Cool. Cool yeah. stuff. Yeah. I think I think you share a lot of stuff. But one last question, since we talk about negative interest, how will that affect you know our bonds? If let's say we own bonds and if interest rates continue to stay low, or maybe even you know explore the negative territory further, how does that play? How would that look like? Yeah, I think if this uh, situation of uh, you know interest rates uh, of very low uh, to uh, zero interest rates, in fact, in certain uh, markets we're talking about the. Uh, uh, negative real interest rates already. Mm-hmm. So if this persists, then of course uh, a lot of your safe uh, havens that we were talking about, a lot of your uh, developed markets, uh, government bonds, are not attractive because uh, I mean, who want to get uh, you know quasi zero percent kind of returns <laughs> uh, and maybe even real uh, negative returns mm-hmm. when you take into mm-hmm. account inflation uh, expectations and inflation rates. Uh, so of course, uh, if uh, this kind of low interest rate environment persists even longer then all the more, uh, I think it's more interesting to look at uh, within the bond space, like, to look at the higher yielding segments and to see whether it's worthwhile taking the extra risk to get the extra returns, let's say, uh, in the high yield space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I, I think I think you've shared a lot of good stuff. Is there any other thing you want to add? Um, I think for bonds, uh, maybe I should just add that uh, even for myself, I do have some exposure as well uh, to bonds and uh, for my portfolio. And uh, I think in terms of uh, what it can do or how it can benefit me is uh, really in terms of the kind of regular coupons I get. I also like the fact that for uh, the actively managed bond funds I have, I can reinvest the so-called coupons uh, that I get, let's say every quarter or every six months, just to enjoy the power of compounding uh, in the longer term. So I think from a portfolio perspective uh, for many investors out there, if you're Looking to you know uh, build your portfolio, you want to have your exciting growth uh, equities <laughs> uh, and so on, right? Uh, fair enough, but uh, you also want to uh, consider you know having a little bit of bonds if you haven't done so simply because uh, of the kind of uh, uh, protection and uh, you know less volatility that it it brings la. and also you know the kind of regular coupons that it gives me as well. Uh, I think it's worthwhile considering a portfolio uh, with equities and bonds, uh, you know, as a diversification kind of uh, uh, a way of, you know, managing the risks that we face la, in global markets. Mm. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to having 100% uh, in equities or 100% in tech, I think those are ooh, ooh. not very advisable <laughs> yeah. for any investor unless that bucket is just like 10% of your overall wealth mm, mm. and you just want to, you know, uh, 
be more aggressive. Yeah. 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 And that's a story for another day. Yes. Yeah. That'll be Thank another you. story. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> awesome. Yes. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. learn something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our social, sign up for our weekly newsletter. We are doing a weekly newsletter rebooked. We are going to have a lot of information within the newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Also, if you have any interesting thoughts you want to share or you know someone that we would like to hear from, reach out to us through hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead. Stay tuned next week and always remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, sustainable for all. Okay, I, I have uh, three questions that I ask yeah. every single guest. Okay, yeah. so... First question is, what is a core life principle that you hold closely to? I think one key principle, uh, it's uh, uh, to keep learning. Yeah. I think uh, I've been uh, working for, uh, I think coming to close to two decades. And uh, I'm just uh, always uh, surprised sometimes in the course of my daily work uh, by the things that I come across that are new to me. It's not just uh, in the investment world. It's also, of course, uh, just uh, the work, you know, working with my colleagues, with my teammates. So I, I learn from them as well. So I think the concept of, uh, you know, uh, just to keep learning, it's probably underappreciated maybe to some extent, uh, or maybe we sometimes take it in a very practical way where we feel like we need to take a course or, you know, <laughs> or take a master's mm -hmm. course. But I feel it's, uh, it's just daily future things. Like that, though, right? Sorry? Excuse future like that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are good uh, skills future courses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> yes, yes. yeah, but I think it's just, uh, yeah, to keep learning from, uh, yeah, from uh, everyday things. And I think that uh, keeps me uh, feeling refreshed and also curious in how I approach things, uh, because in the daily course of my work, uh, you know, there's so many things happening. Uh, it keeps us very busy, sometimes quite stressed up and so on. But uh, when I just remind myself of, hey, but I'm here to learn from this, it could be maybe something not very pleasant as well. I think it just opens up my mind uh, to, to how I can maybe learn from it and share that with, let's say, uh, my colleagues or even my kids. I think that's something that, uh, yeah, I really uh, believe in. Yeah. Nice, cool. Mm. Next question. What is the personal finance advice that you feel needs to be further propagated? I think uh, that, uh, you know, when it comes to investing, we should be thinking of how we can minimize the emotional part of it. Uh, so it's very conceptual. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is... Uh, Meditate. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know, it's because I think a lot of uh, us, including myself, when I get uh, when I started off uh, investing, right, uh, after school, after uni, then uh, I get very carried away by uh, you know, buying all the exciting stocks, mm. uh, and uh, I think uh, I then lost track of uh, the reasons why I'm I'm here to invest. And I will remember that along the way somehow, but then I'm again, then get distracted again, mm. uh, simply because uh, of uh, markets going down. Then you know people are worried, and then I may then make a decision to oh maybe I should also then sell, yeah, yeah. Uh, or there's a fear of missing out. Uh, mm. You know, like in the last few months, I've heard friends basically uh, punting on uh, GameStop. GameStop. Yeah. So 
Uh, I mean, nowadays when I hear that, I, I'm not tempted to join. I, mm. I don't fear of missing out. Uh, mm. But maybe, you know, 15 years ago, I would. I yeah, would yeah. have. And I think my advice, therefore, is to to be very focused on what you really want to achieve. And uh, one way to do that, right, uh, to be very robotic and mechanical and in a way boring in your strategy, right, is to have a re regular savings plan, something disciplined. And that is the part where, you know, uh, uh, no matter what, like, you know that you're just going to be invested. Mm. Do your rebalancing once a year just to make sure that your asset allocation is in order. The expensive stuff in the portfolio that has risen up a lot, you trim down a bit, like, take some profits from there and you know, allocate some of your profits into other sectors that haven't done as well. So I think that is one strategy that I think for the last few years, I really uh, believe in the merits of because I can see my portfolio just... Uh, uh, you know, steadily uh, growing uh, as a result. And uh, if I could have told myself 20 years ago when I started off what I should be doing, then really I would have done the regular savings plan. So I have a few interns in my uh, company and, uh, you know, they're so young, 20, 21. So I always tell them, yeah, uh, you know, it's good that you're um, punting, uh, speculating in a lot of exciting stocks, uh, commodities and whatnot, right? And I say, you know, learn from it, learn from the experience. But uh, start a regular savings plan in something quite boring, like maybe even a bond ETF mm. or an equity fund. And I told them, uh, maybe in 10, 15 years time, let's catch up and uh, let's just look at how that part of your portfolio has performed. And because I, I'm quite confident that uh, the boring part would have done quite well. Yeah, nice. Thank you. Number three is, uh, which part of your life are you giving additional focus on now? I think um, in terms of focus, uh, at this point uh, in my life, it's uh, to just... Uh, be healthier, yeah. So uh, whether it's uh, from a mental point of view or from a physical point of view in terms of exercising, hopefully eating better and so on. And uh, We're already one month away from CNY, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, uh, so my New Year resolutions, I think still kind of on track. <laughs> yeah, I haven't given up on uh, you know the goal of uh, trying to exercise more frequently. And... Uh, I think why I've been looking at that more recently is, yes, I've uh, gotten obviously older. I've entered a new phase of, of my life, uh, you know, hitting 40s and all. But it's just that I think uh, when I'm healthier, uh, uh, it helps me to do a lot of things, I think, better, uh, whether as an employee in the company, uh, in terms of making perhaps some decisions or to work with my colleagues and the clients, or even in a very, in a very personal way, uh, dealing with the family and my kids, my young kids. So I think, yeah, when I see myself as healthier, I can do a better job in all these different functions. Uh, I think a uh, pandemic as well has helped me to maybe refocus a bit on my uh, priorities and energies into maybe what I should be doing. So it's not just, let's say, uh, always work, 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 but uh, it's, uh, you know, just being healthy. And, uh, and that actually helps me to do maybe more at work, in fact. So a bit of the kind of thinking in the last few months. Yeah. Nice. Good mm. stuff. And I like that you call it functions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take care. Thank you. Yeah, Love it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.